from a, a website called the Citizens Handbook, which is um, which is an online wow, which is an online uh, book about being a citizen. Talks about horizontal engagement, vertical engagement, and then there's a bunch of books and articles and links. This is one of the articles, okay. and it's by Becky Bond and Zach Exley. It's an excerpt from their book, Rules for Revolutionaries, How Big Organizing Can Change Everything. The book details their work for Bernie Sanders in 2016, which built a grassroots campaign by volunteers instead of staff. It's the best book on new ways of organizing. What set Bernie apart from the start of his campaign was his message and his authenticity as a messenger. Oh, sorry, his message, not his message. I don't know what I'm talking about. Let me start that again. My coffee's just kicking in. Um, I, by the way, I gave you both guys moder- moderator. I think you saw that. What Mm -hmm. set Bernie apart from the start of his campaign was his message and his authenticity as a messenger. Then he unleashed the makings of a real political revolution. He asked for one. He outlined the radical solutions our moment calls for, not in the tepid incrementalist compromises that most politicians think are all that is feasible. Bernie didn't talk about education tax credits or even debt-free college. He demanded free college tuition. He didn't advocate for complicated health insurance schemes. He said health care is a human right. Bernie called for an end to mass incarceration, not an incremental changes, not incremental changes to sentencing laws. He had no ten point plan to regulate fracking to the point that it would wouldn't be feasible in most, most places in the United States. He simply said we should ban fracking. When it came to the deportation of children, he couldn't have been clearer. Quote, I will not deport children from the United States of America, he said. Part of Bernie's effectiveness came from his matter-of-fact way of speaking and his old-school Brooklyn accent. But what really allowed people to trust him is that he has been saying the same thing for 30 years. Bernie volunteers said that everywhere we went. People ask us, how can, what can we learn from big organizing that powered the volunteer movement behind Bernie Sanders? Is it only possible in a presidential campaign? No. Think about the movement to defend black lives. Leaders like Alicia Garza and Erica Garner are powerful messengers with a powerful message. Who they are and what they are saying and where they are saying it represents a major change from how national civil rights advocacy has been voiced and led in the past few decades. Or think about climate activists fighting to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Native American leaders, ranchers, and students are leading these fights instead of the public interest lawyers who who the mainstream green movement has had leading the charge in environmental issues. These new leaders are showing the world that the fight to keep fossil fuels in the ground is not a pet issue. It is no less than the basic struggle for human rights. In fact, people are willing to go big to 
win big change. When there is a credible plan to win something truly game-changing, more people commit to actions, big and small, to work together toward victory. We're not saying you can just ask people to do anything big and they'll do it. That's absolutely not it. Here are the rules behind the first rule. First, the goal you're asking people to spend their precious time on needs to be worth their while. Remember, people are struggling every day at their jobs or their schools, in their neighborhoods, and sometimes in their families. Why should they join your fight? If you win, is it going to make a difference for them personally or for their children or grandchildren or for their community or country? Your big ask needs to be big in the real lives of the people you're asking to join you. It's not enough that you believe it's big. Second, you need to be able to tell people about a plan that gets the world from the world as it is to the world where you've won. And that plan has to be credible. People are smart and, for good reason, are increasingly cynical when it comes to sussing out plans that will never work. They've seen countless political failures in their lives, personally, locally, and nationally. Your big ask needs to make sense to them. Finally, you need to offer people a way to participate that will truly make a difference. And again, people are super smart about sensing when they're being given busy work. Moreover, you need to give people small, medium, and really big ways to contribute because some people will be able to put in a lot of time and many more will only have one day per month or a couple of afternoons a week. If people see that you're able to give everyone a way to participate, this makes your plan more credible, which helps win over more people and allows you to take full advantage of all the people who are available to help, which is what's going to propel you to win. Any campaign, no matter the size, can ask people to do something big if it's working towards something people believe is worth fighting for. So the key to big organizing is that you don't just ask people to pay staff at an organization to do something big, though some supporting small, though supporting some staff with small dollar contributions is part of it. You ask people to be part of that something big because doing something big is only possible if everyone is doing it together. And that takes a lot of work. You need supporters to do big things and a lot of small things that add up to big things to help you execute a plan to win big change. Almost anyone can make a big ask. You don't have to be charismatic to make a big ask. You just have to, you just have, to have an ask that is worth working for a plan to win and a meaningful roles and meaningful roles for volunteers. I have to repeat that. You just have to ask you just have to have an ask that is worth working for, a plan to win and meaningful roles for volunteers. Oh, just that. That's hardly anything. Hey Jade, you're welcome to come on up if you want. It's nice to see you.
The ask should never be for volunteers to add their names to a list so that organizers might call them back later. It needs to be immediate and crucial. This is not something we're, dis we're discovering, but rather something we're lifting up. Everyday movements are doing big organizing in the local context, and some movements in a lot of local contexts, and a few in a national context. They understand that people are less and less inclined to take small actions in isolation for small gains, especially when our problems are so big and it's gotten so bad and everybody knows it. We're almost to the end, just so you know. Hillary Clinton's primary campaign struggled to get a handful of events planned by volunteers on her website when Bernie had thousands. On January 25, 2016, just a week before the Iowa caucus, Bernie, a Bernie supporter on Reddit pulled the number of public events listed on a map on map.berniesanders.com and hillaryclinton.com slash events for within a 250-mile range of New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Austin. The Clinton campaign had 39 phone banks listed. But the Bernie campaign had 1,809. Fuck. <laughs> I'll read that again. What? Yeah, the Clinton campaign had 39 phone banks listed. The Bernie campaign had 1,809. While Bernie was explaining that he needed tens of millions of people to get involved in the fight for justice and was inviting his supporters to build a political revolution, the Clinton campaign was sending out emails that said, make three calls today, and when Hillary wins Iowa caucuses tomorrow night, you'll feel great knowing you helped make history. People didn't want to do even small things for the small changes that Clinton promised. They understood that to actually help make history, it takes more than making three calls. The good news for organizers who want to help build the political revolution is that people are really just waiting for you to ask them to do something big. So, ask. I just thought that was kind of an interesting uh, article. What do you think? I mean, it kind of speaks to bystander syndrome. Like people, until you engage, like a lot of people don't feel like they have something to engage with a lot of the times. And they, they stand around looking at like, what the hell am I supposed to do about it? I agree, Drew. That's kind of where I am. It feels like a lot of people desire leadership, right? Because I don't know. It's just not that every like not that they should even desire that. That they should they should desire a cohesive movement where everybody matters to it. But it's just I feel like everybody's waiting for permission to do something. You know. I do. I do. I think that's. Um, I think that's. I think that's right. But I think that it's. So when you were in school, were you the were you the guy that was that would get done with your your math quiz first and go up and turn it in while and everybody else is like finishing theirs, 
Or were you the one of the ones like going, how does that guy finish already? Um, I don't know. I don't remember. A lot of my, uh, a lot of my childhood is buried under, uh, yeah. I see. <laughs> Zach, but, um, Zach, how about you? Do you, did you have that experience one way or the other? I, yeah, I was usually, I didn't get good grades, but, uh, yeah, I, I was one of the, one of those first finishers. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can just feel the, like everybody else in the, the tension goes up. Right. And this is, I think this is why I have the Cassandra culture rooms is because we are the ones that are, we are ahead. We're done. We're done with our tests. We turned it in. We got nothing to do. We're twiddling our thumbs while everybody's finishing. Cause we have to wait for the, everybody to catch up to us. I think this is the way I see it anyway. I mean, I'm open to other ways of seeing it, but this is the way that I see it. So it's, it will be helpful for us to be doing useful kinds of things like talking about and, and experimenting with group things. Like even if though we haven't produced anything, we sure have learned a lot about interactions, especially online ones. And, and the kinds of um, relationships that can, you know, the kinds of things that can make things tense or, or, or not among groups, even if we're not actually, this is extremely good practice because it will make us experienced leaders when the rest of everybody catches up. And I don't know how soon that'll be, but this has been my whole life. I've, this is, I've gone through this where I can see what's going to happen down the road. I can't tell you how soon, but I can see what's coming. I totally see it. <laughs> and I don't, I don't see it clear, but I see it coming. So, and it will require us being able to deal with each other in small groups and in larger groups. And this experience I think is going to prepare us because we already are on board. We know what's up. I think even Greg knows what's up. When we talk about domestic policy, there's a lot less uh, division, I'd say. There's still some, you know, different approaches, but everybody agrees on a on a common goal. I think that that and a common situation that things are fucked. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Hmm. I, I hope I'm wrong. Because, I, uh... <laughs> I mean, what does it mean if I'm, what does it mean if I'm right? Shit, it's not going to be pretty. Oof. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like I hope that I'm wrong about the, the direction of, uh, of how things are going to go within the United States. Um, honestly, that's why I'm looking at expatriating. That's, uh, yeah. Looking at, yeah. Hey, how can uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I love this, if this place, I don't know if I love this place enough to, to fight for it. And that's one of my hangups. And maybe some people can find a problem with that and sure, fine, criticize me. But, like, I, it's like, 
it's like that scene from the Boondocks where Martin Luther King didn't die in the in this theoretical or this uh this fantasy timeline and uh Martin Luther King sees the how his people have been acting and he looks at it and says, I see the promised land over the horizon and no, I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. <laughs> so uh yeah, it's how I feel like at this moment. It's like, is it even worth fighting for? Is it even, like, for me, like, I've seen places that have the amenities and the lifestyle and the standard of living and everything. I've, the, the healthcare, like, I've been there. I've seen it. It's not, a, it's not this mystery, freaking Wizard of Oz kind of Emerald City nonsense. It's, these places exist. And so, like, for me, I don't, Oh no. Sorry. So that citizen's handbook is kind of uh, it's an inter it's got some interesting articles in it like this one on principles of democratic structuring. Um, once the movement no longer clings tenaciously to the ide ideology of structurelessness, it will be free to develop those forms of organization best suited for healthy functioning. This does not mean that we should go to the other extreme and blindly imitate traditional forms of organization, but neither should we blindly reject them all. Some traditional techniques will prove useful, albeit not perfect. Some will give us insights into what we should not do to obtain certain ends with minimal costs to individuals in the movement. Mostly, we will have to experiment with different kinds of structuring and develop a variety of techniques to use for different situations. Damn it, there's not one answer for all. This um this also comes from that citizens um handbook that the um, other link is too. The title is Principles of Democratic Structuring. I just want one answer. Somebody give me the the, the automatic answer because that'd be great. I don't want to have to do some work. The lot system is one such idea that has emerged from the movement. Not, it is not applicable to all situations, but it is useful in some. I don't know what the lot system is. Yeah, maybe yeah. they explain. That's maybe they explain it. I'm sure Jade knows. She's a good organizer. <laughs> L O T T. Um, huh? How's this, how is this an acronym spelled? L O T. The lot system. L O T. Lot system. I don't know. It might be. I don't know what. Uh, yeah. Well, let's see. It might be in this. I don't know. Other ideas for structuring as needed are other idea ideas for structuring are needed. But before we can proceed to experiment intelligently, we must accept the idea that there is nothing inherently bad about the structure itself, only its excessive use. While engaging in this trial and error process, there are some principles we can keep in mind that are essential to democratic structuring and are politically effective also. Number one, there are, there are seven 
seven of these um, seven of these uh, principles to keep in mind that are essential to democratic structuring and are politically effective also. So here's the first one. Delegation of specific authority to specific individuals for specific tasks by democratic procedures. Letting people assume jobs or tasks by default only means they are not dependably done. If people are selected to do a task, preferably after expressing an interest or willingness to do it, they have made a commitment which cannot easily be ignored. So that seems important. Would you like to comment on the failure just in time? Anyone have a thought on that one? So delegation of specific authority to specific individuals for specific tasks by democratic procedures. So somebody says, I'm willing to do that. Everybody generally agrees. And that's that person hasn't kind of made a commitment to the group. Seems rational. Right. Especially the whole democratic process thing where, you know, you, uh, I don't know, but it's, as we've seen in some cases, democracy doesn't always, is most, is sometimes a popularity contest in which we don't always elect the most qualified person. So like, I don't, uh, well, that's, but that's no, why uh, you have a consensus process, right? Yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. And and you don't give somebody a position indefinitely. You give them a specific, you know. So, but I think that 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 um, that principle, if you don't like, it seems obvious once you say it, but if you don't think about it. Um that way then you can end up where you have this letting people assume jobs by default and then it's not really doesn't really dependably get done depending on the person yeah yeah technocracy can be bad i i, I get it yeah so requiring all the so this is number two requiring all those to whom authority has been delegated to be responsible to all those who selected them. This is how the group has control over people in positions of authority. Individuals may exercise power, but it is the group that has the ultimate say over how the power is exercised. Also an important, also important, yeah. I just wanted to take a moment to invite folks. Mm -hmm. Okay, number three. Distribution of authority among as many people as is reasonably possible. This prevents monopoly of power and requires those in positions of authority to consult with many others in the process of exercising it. It also gives many people an opportunity to have responsibility for specific tasks and thereby learn specific skills. So delegation of authority to as, among as many people as possible, which makes things more chaotic, right? And can make things take longer to get done. 
but then you also have everybody is every you know because I think the last article was clear that you know people are smart they recognize busy work when they see it <laughs> you know mm-hmm. there shouldn't be any busy work because there's so much that has to be done speaking of delegation um, if you don't want to stop what you're doing to press buttons just mm-hmm. All right, so number four, rotation of tasks among individuals. Responsibilities which are held too long by one person, formally or informally, come to be seen as that person's property and are not easily relinquished or controlled by the group. Conversely, if tasks are rotated too frequently, the individual does not have time to learn the job well and acquire a sense of satisfaction of doing a good job. So rotation of tasks, this is why you'll have a, you know, a one-year term for certain offices when you're on an elected body or an appointed body. You know, in, in the, even in like the Toastmasters Club, I think we changed who was president every year. But it, they had enough time to learn it, right? Oh, this one gets to what you were saying. Number five, allocation of tasks along rational criteria. Selecting someone for a position. It says posit ion. I was like, wait. Somebody put a space in that word. Doesn't belong. Selecting someone for a position because they are liked by the group or giving them hard work because they are disliked serves neither the group nor the person in the long run. Ability, interest, and responsibility have got to be the major concern in such selection. People should be given an opportunity to learn skills they do not have, but this is best done through some sort of apprenticeship program rather than the sink or swim method. Having a responsibility one can't handle is demoralizing. Conversely, being blackballed from what one can do well does not encourage one to develop one's skills. Women have been punished for being competent throughout most of human history. The movement does not need to repeat this process. Number six, diffusion of information to everyone as frequently as possible. Information is power. Access to information enhances one's power. When an informal network spreads new ideas and information among themselves outside the group, they are already engaged in the process of forming an opinion without the group participating. The more one knows about how things work, the more politically effective one can be. I'm going to read that again. This is number six. Diffusion of information to everyone as frequently as possible. Information is power, and access to information enhances one's power. When an informal network spreads new ideas and information among themselves outside the group, they are already engaged in the process of forming an opinion without the group participating. The more one knows about how things work, the more politically effective one can be. Number seven, equal access to resources needed by the group. This is not always perfectly possible, but should be striven for. 
A member who maintains a monopoly over a needed resource, like a printing press or a dark room owned by a husband, can or a van, can unduly influence the use of that resource. Skills and information are also resources. Members' skills and information can be equally available only when members are willing to teach each other what they know to others. When these principles are applied, these seven principles I just read through, they ensure whatever structures are developed by different movement groups will be controlled by and be responsible to the group. The group of people in positions of authority will be diffuse, flexible, open, and temporary. They will not be in such an easy position to institutionalize their power because ultimate decisions will be made by the group at large. The group will have power to determine who shall exercise authority within it. So the seven principles essential to democratic structuring are Delegations of specific authority to specific individuals for specific tasks by democratic procedures. Number two, requiring all those to whom authority has been delegated to be responsible to all those who selected them, also known as accountability. Number three, distribution of authority among as many people as is reasonably possible. Number four, rotation of tasks among individuals. Number five, allocation of tasks among ration, along rational criteria. Allocation of tasks along rational criteria. Diffusion of information to everyone as frequently as possible. And seven, equal access to resources needed by the group. In other words, if your dad has a van... Everybody's got to have access. And that's under the tyranny of structurelessness um, from the Citizen's Handbook, which I have linked in the show description. Welcome. So this is part of a, a section on creating a local citizens group that that you that just speaks to something that I keep saying when we start talking about doing something kind of using call-in as a connector, begin by answering key questions to when you want to create a little citizens group. And let's say we want to create a call-in citizens group, you know, instead of local. It says begin by answering key questions. What are we trying to accomplish? What size of area are we going to organize? The smaller the area, the easier the task. Who will support our efforts? Who will oppose our efforts? What is a good idea for our first action? It should be simple and increase the group's visibility. And how are we going to engage others? Begin with, you could, so these are bunch of different ways you could start. You could begin with research. Although professionals often start with research, you don't have to start here. On the other hand, you might be wise to begin with research if you intend to tackle an issue you do not fully understand. 
You could also begin by convening people. The Community Project Examples section of the Citizen's Handbook lists many informal opportunities for neighbors to meet one another. If your focus is a public interest issue, you will need to figure out a way to bring together people with the same focus. You could also begin by joining an existing group. Most neighborhoods have many different kinds of active organizations that welcome newcomers. If you wish to address an issue that transcends the neighborhood, you might consider joining an existing group that is trying to address the issue. Here it is better to join a small grassroots organization. Organizations with paid staff often sideline volunteers, treating them as mere sources of unpaid labor. You could also begin by starting a new group. If there's no group addressing your issue or none willing or able to join, or none you are willing or able to join, you might have to start a new group. See forming a core group, which is another article in this um, online resource. Keep in mind that there's a natural tendency to want to start your own group. This creates proliferation of similar groups, most with few resources, all competing for attention and sometimes funding. And then the last way you could begin that's listed in this one section is you can cooperate with similar publics. Cooperate with similar publics. Every place has well-informed publics with the same focus. The grassroots is often weakened by these small groups because these small groups do not cooperate with each other. This phenomenon benefits corporations and self-serving members, members of the governing class. So if you create your own public interest group, make a special effort to cooperate with groups with similar goals. This requires regular face-to-face -face contact, cultivating friendly personal relationships between people belonging to different groups, and spending time to sort out differences. That's the one I'm most interested in, frankly, the cooperating with similar publics, because I do think that there are plenty of, plenty of groups already out there, and none of them are they're all so focused on their issue, they don't even know what the other ones that are doing something on the same issue are doing. I don't think. I don't know how much, I don't know how much cross-information happens. I don't know if, like, in the nonprofit world, in the activist organizing world, if, if, if there's an industry magazine or something or I mean I don't know there might be like for for like animal rescue there might be like animal rescue quarterly or whatever but I kind of I don't know honestly so basically try to address the needs or the desires of other groups to fold them into the greater scheme of the movement? I think it's about, I think it's about um, being in contact with other organizations that have similar goals, not trying to fold anybody in, but rather forming alliances, more of a, of a confederation than, a, than like becoming like, um, than absorbing them. 
Because oh, I okay. think we're we're better off if we don't just. I mean, we don't want because it, it might work for the success of corporations in capitalism to do all the consolidations, but I don't think in terms of real on the ground organizing against that we should be going. We should be trying to look toward consolidation. Do you? I mean, maybe there's advantages. I don't know. But that, you know, everybody's got their little fiefdom and you don't, I don't want to, I don't want to tell somebody else how to do their, their activism. I just want to show them what I'm doing and see what they're doing. Yeah, makes sense. And then be in solidarity with them if we have similar goals, right? Mm -hmm. Are you guys tired of this topic? Because we've got, I've got the 11 guide. I've got the 11 guidelines for community organizing. This is from CCON, edited from Creative Community Organizing in, uh, by Barrett Kohler, 2010. These are 12. There's 12 on this list, but it says top 11 guidelines. <laughs> so first thing is, Oh, that was the other funny thing. I, I, um, just to regress for a moment to a previous show I did for crowdsourcing revolution, where we talked about the, um, the censorship industrial complex and the, and the top 50, um, the top 50 censorship industrial complex actors that you should know I just wanted to get that out of my system because it was bugging me so this is going back to the citizens handbook um, top 11 guidelines for community organizing which is 12 things Um, one try to figure out people's common self-interest use this to build a campaign Number two, if you can't get a person or institution to support you, convince them that it's in their best interest to stay out of the fight. Number three, develop a strategy by imagining the moment before victory. Then figure out the steps that lead to that moment. So in other words, reverse engineer. Number four, advocate for the positive as well as condemn the negative. But what if the negative is a positive? Five, the more complicated a strategy or tactic, the harder it is to carry out and the less likely it will be successful. If you want lots of people to participate in a campaign, ask the majority of them to do one thing and only one. Number six, reinforce unity and try to compensate for divisions among people with whom you work. Number seven, be certain everyone understands the risks they're taking, what could go wrong, and what losses they might suffer. Make sure you scare them real well. Number eight, frame questions in ways that help people think deeply and unexpectedly about possible answers. Ooh, that's an easy one. Quick, frame the question in a way that is deeply and unexpectedly about possible answers. (laughs) 
Huh? Wait. Can you, can you give an example of that? Like something that makes sense? Like, I don't huh? So, I so I think it's more like um, asking people to, to, instead of just telling them something, asking them to think about it deeply. Like, I don't know how to give an example of it because it's um, like... Um, there, there's a lot of the, there's a lot of the, do you know Freakonomics at all? No. Okay. So, um, I wonder if somebody else has a, has a, an idea of one. Um, cause it's kind of like, um, see, I, I see things that are happening all the time when I'm out and about and I say, say things like this, but I'm trying to think of an example right now and I can't come up with one. Let me think about it another minute. Like, I think it's kind of that, that kind of an approach, like, instead of saying, um, instead of saying something like, um, that, check out that homeless encampment over there, I can't believe what an eyesore it is, that instead you say, what do you think those people are, why do you think those people are there? Like, or what do you think that we could be doing about that? Like, instead of just being a, try and have a question that has the answer you want in it, I think is what that saying is saying, but I don't know. It's kind of a, I have to think about how to give an example for that one because it doesn't have any, of course. All of these are easier, more said than easier said than done, right? Okay. I can give advice all day, but so frame questions and help in ways that help, like like. I don't know what kind of questions really they mean, either. Hmm. And so let's see, these are all like really good pieces of advice, but they should be used all the time. Number nine, encourage laughter and cheerfulness in the face of diversity, of adversity, not diversity. Encourage, that's different. Laughter and cheerfulness in the face of diversity is weird. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Laughter and cheerfulness in the face of adversity. So like... So like, oh, oh, that's no big deal. We lost again. <laughs> like laugh so you don't cry. Okay. Number 10, devote time to developing personal relationships before asking people to do something. Number 11, avoid becoming too sure of yourself. It can lead to arrogance of thinking you know what's right for other people. Avoid structurelessness if you want to achieve concrete results. And the structurelessness we read the I read already the structurelessness essay. Oh, that's the same thing. There's a, 
uh, there's a um, in Howard County, Maryland. There was the library system did <clears throat> find service and advocacy opportunities. So the the library basically did a job fair that wasn't a job fair. It was called the Get Involved Fair. So they had a, a, <clears throat> a group called Horizon Foundation sponsor this. Get involved, get involved community forum, and it was like just an hour long, and they invited um, organizations um, that did service in the area or provide did advocacy. And it's only an hour. I mean, it seems like a pretty easy thing that to to put together in your own community to do one of these. I mean, I don't know how many people you would get out, but you could, it says, respond, engage, advocate, join Howard County Library System and community members to explore how we can advance racial and or social equity in Howard County. Share your ideas on our community wall or have a seat and join a facilitated chat about advancing racial and social equity. Both events are part of Books in Bloom, community building through empathy and understanding. Books in Bloom is a free annual celebration of the joy of books and reading and an interactive day of family fun and meaningful dialogue. I just thought it was an interesting event. It's like the, 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 the fair itself, it says, is 3 to 4 p.m., I mean, that's like, you could do that, you know, that's a pretty easy thing to do. The whole event goes, the the part, the um, doing the community wall and everything goes from 11.30 to 2.30. And then at 3, they do this community forum where they talk to these organizations that are looking for people to get involved and make their pitch and people can kind of go to each of their tables and see what's going on. I mean, what a great idea. Super simple. What do you guys think? It sounds reasonable. Like, you know, provide entertainment and something to do and then talk about business, you know, or, you know, not really business, but you know, you know, I, I think I get it. I wonder, I wonder in a larger city, I think it might be a little bit more um, overwhelming to try and do, but you could do it, I think. I don't even remember where I found this. Awesome. All right, y'all. Thanks for being